God's grace and his peace are yours in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And the psalm that we'll be looking at today, Psalm 67, is actually found in your worship folders as our prayer of confession. It's right next to that. If you'd like to look at that text in front of you, it will also be projected on the screen as we look at this text. Um, this psalm is enormously important in the history of the worshiping community. The uh, Jews used this psalm to close synagogue services for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the Western Church, and by the Western Church, I mean Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Anglicans, and others, um, used this psalm as morning uh, worship. So as soon as the sun would come out, this was a psalm that was often sung. So when the sunlight was beginning to be seen, with darkness being removed bit by bit, with the rays of the sun reaching further and further into the West, the church used this psalm to call people to praise God. And in these opening verses, which should sound very familiar to you, because we do this as the blessing, it's a, it's a quotation of the benediction we find in the book of Numbers. We also do it at every school chapel here at Grace. The entire earth is being encouraged in this case to honor God for his universal mercy. When we first find the blessing, it's given to Aaron and the priests to bless the people of Israel in particular. But in this case, there's a more universal or global aspect to it. One of the main reasons for Israel's existence, of course, is to bring forth Christ. So notice the hope that's found in these first verses. So if you can see those, they're projected for your screen here. It's that God's salvation would be among all nations, which is, of course, fulfilled in the church. And it's still being fulfilled as God's word spreads throughout the world. It's also worth noting that both those who are in Christ and those who are not are still blessed by God, since he is the one who rules and upholds the universe. Or as Christ will say in the Gospels, he says that God causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. And so even people that don't acknowledge God as the creator, people that don't acknowledge Christ as their savior, are still being blessed by God just for their existence. They just don't know it because God upholds the universe by the word of his power. Uh, twice during the psalm it also says, May the peoples praise you, O God. May all the peoples praise you. It says it up there in verse 3. It'll also say it later on in verse 5. And so when Scripture repeats itself for emphasis, it's probably worth paying attention. So in this psalm, God's salvation has gone out to all the nations, like the rising sun, and this is the salvation that still calls to us today. Today, sorry, excuse me. And so I want to look at the next passage, go ahead and go to these next two verses, and kind of look, think about this really quick. So as I was looking at this psalm and preparing for today, the, the idea that God's justice is in the earth, you see this in this passage, right? You rule the peoples with equity. Another translation has, the, you rule the peoples justly. And you look at the world, it's sometimes hard to see this. When you look at the news cycle right now, whether it's what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in Israel and in the Gaza Strip, when you look at our political environment, we just got done dealing with um, a global pandemic, and it's still hanging around in some circles. And we even closer to home, when we think about some of the things that have happened in the last few weeks, Pastor Dinger can tell you all the things that have been going on. We've had people pass on. We've had people that are in a really, really tough cancer battle. We've had people that have relationship issues, and we've had, you know, with marriages and with children and everything else. And so when you look at this passage and see God's judging the people with equity, it's not a, a, a bad question to ask, why does it look the way it does? Why are the nation, I mean, it'd be pretty hard in Ukraine right now, in the eastern part of the Ukraine, to actually be praising God, saying that God's ruling the nations with equity. It's kind of hard sometimes when we see terrorism and other things to say, is God ruling things with equity? So what do we do with this? 
Because that's a very human concern. Because in our perspective, it looks like God's delaying or God's not answering evil. And it's a place where skeptics will even say things like, you know, well, if God is all good, why does he allow this stuff to happen? But if God is all powerful, then why doesn't he stop it? And so you, you get skeptical questions that will often come with these, uh, these events when we see these passages like we do in Psalm 67. And so, just so you know, there are some answers to this. I'm going to give you a couple of answers. It's not the main purpose of why I'm uh, sharing with you today, but it is worth thinking about a couple of things. The first reason that I would say that God is delaying is actually found in our epistle reading today. So in 1 Timothy, God says that he wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's how that passage ends. So one of the reasons God delays, one of the reasons there's still injustice in the world, is God wants heaven to be full. He allows temporal suffering now so that more people will be with him in eternity. So that's one reason, is so that heaven will be full. Another answer that I can give to you for this is the classic example, and that's the problem of evil. Like, why is there evil at all? There's a couple of ways of looking at this. Number one, the real question we should ask ourselves is why is there any good at all, given our condition? And I could spend some time on that, but I really want to think of it a different way. And that's, how do we even know what evil is? Right? We get really, really angry. I'm going to come back to this in a while because I'm going to quote an atheist who's complaining about evil, but it's interesting that an atheist is complaining about evil, if you think about it. But why is there evil at all? What is evil? Well, evil only makes sense if it has something good as a reference point. So in other words, the reason evil is evil is it destroys something. It's like a cancer. It's a parasite. It's sucking out of something that is good. Murder is wrong because it takes a life. Stealing's wrong because it actually takes something that doesn't belong to you. Evil is a parasite. And so evil, therefore, has a beginning because it has to have good as a reference point. And so the only reason evil makes sense is if there's an eternal good to measure it against. And so even asking the question, why is there evil in the world, if you think it through, we can actually say there's actually good in the world that it's a reference to, and we should ask, why is there any good in the world? And if we look at Scripture, this evil not only has a beginning, but it will also have an end. And so as a point of theological clarification for you, this is just something that I, I love to talk about. My high school students, I've got a couple former students, even graduates here, that will recognize this. But we do not teach that evil is the opposite of God. The devil is not the opposite of God. We're not Star Wars theologians with a light side and a dark side. We don't believe in a yin and yang. The devil is finite, the devil has a beginning, and the devil will be ultimately judged. And so there is a beginning and an end to evil. And so your answer to this, because this, this really did, when I was reading the psalm, I can see the temptation there. God, where is your justice? Well, God waits because he wants heaven to be full. That's one reason. And another reason is, of course, that evil has a beginning and it has an end. And the ultimate solution is on the cross. And we're going to approach that here. I'm going to tell you a brief story. This is a true story based on these passages. You know, in the midst of these circumstances, as we look at the world, this is not new. And so in the 1600s, in the 17th century, there was one of the most destructive wars in human history called the Thirty Years' War. It set all these European powers together. At first, it seemed like it was a war of religion, but in reality, it wasn't. It was more of a geopolitical game that was going on. But in what we now call Germany in particular, it was the most destructive war until the 20th century. And so this, this had huge ramifications. The memory of this lasted for generations. And so it was armies, ravaging armies would come through, living off the land. People were destitute. There were famines everywhere. Disease was spreading. You had uh, parents that had no kids anymore because the children had died. 
orphans because the parents were gone and they had died. It was a horrendous situation. There was a town, a fortress town in Germany at the time called Eilenburg, and it was a walled city, and it became a refuge for people fleeing the war. So as troops came through the area, there was a pastor there named Martin Rinkert. Martin Rinkert. And so because these troops are in here, he was quartering all these refugees in houses, including his own house, and their goods were regularly plundered by the soldiers coming by. So not surprisingly, food was often scarce in this town. Then in 1637, a plague arrived and overcrowded the city. I mean, in the overcrowded city. So of the four pastors, of the four clergy in Eilenburg, the superintendent left, that's like the senior pastor. Two pastors then died of the disease, and Rinkart was the only one left to tend to the sick and bury the dead. These stats are amazing. Think about this. He performed up to 50 funerals a day, in all totaling over 4,480, including his own wife's. When the death toll got too high for individual funerals, trenches were dug for mass burials. In all, 8,000 died in the city. Imagine being the only pastor and having to do this. That's the, that's the scenario. After the plague came famine. Surviving accounts say that the food was so scarce that 30 or 40 people would fight in the streets over a dead cat or crow. Rinkart gave so much to charity to feed the hungry that he was forced to mortgage several years of his income just to feed and clothe his own children. Then the Swedes came. Rinkart had saved the city once before from the Swedish army in 1637. Now in the wake of the famine in 1639, they were back, demanding 30,000 florins as tribute. And I put that in quotes loosely, tribute. Rinkert again went out to entreat them to lower their demands, but the Swedish general refused. Rinkart turned to the townspeople who had followed him and said, Come, my children, we can find no hearing, no mercy with men, so let us take refuge with God. He fell to his knees and began praying so earnestly that the general relented and asked for only 2,000 florins. Talk about somebody who loves his people, right? He's doing this, and he's advocating with an army, and he's not intimidated by this army, and he goes out to meet them, and because the general is so impressed by his emotional pleading with God and actually saying, God, receive us sort of thing, God, we only rest in your mercy, that he lowered it from 30,000 to 2,000. That's a significant change. The war would drag on for another nine years. Rinkart's services had not earned the town leader's gratitude. They harassed him constantly, frequently about financial issues caused by his efforts to feed the starving people in the city. When peace finally came in 1648, Rinkart was exhausted and prematurely aged. He died the following year. Now, surprisingly, so think, think about those circumstances. The hymns that Rinkart penned were full of praise and trust in God, even when they were spoke of the troubles afflicting Germany. His best-known hymn, We Will Sing Today at the End of Our Service. It was written in 1636 in the middle of the war, and it was written as a table prayer. We know it as, Now Thank We All Our God. You have this printed for you in your bulletin, and so, it's, so if you want to glance at that at some point, imagine the circumstances in the context of his life. This hymn makes no sense unless God restores all things in the end. This hymn makes no sense without the cross. If in the midst of a horrendously devastating war, plague, famine, and death, Rinkart could find the faith to sing his thanks to God, how much more should we, who are living in much better circumstances than him, rejoice in the goodness of God that has blessed us so abundantly, especially since we know our final destination? 
So when we sing that today, I want you to think of that and, and that, that, that joy that we should have because in the end, we know where we're headed. I have a picture for you coming up next. This might look familiar to you. This, this happened in the 1990s, and it's really hard to see on the screen. It's really hard. I'm looking at this one, but on this one, you can maybe see if you're in the front, there's a little dot on there. This is a, this is a picture known uh, as the pale blue dot. Any of you recognize this? This was taken in 1990, sorry, I'm adjusting my microphone there. This was taken in 1990 by the Voyager 1 space, program, space probe. And so it had gone past Jupiter and Saturn. It was launched in the 1970s. And what they did is a solar system family portrait. So they had the, the, the Voyager probe rotate and take a picture of all the planets in the solar system that had been left behind. And this is the portrait it got of Earth. That pale blue dot suspended in the sunbeam is us. This is our home. And there was an, a famous atheist of the time. He was an astronomer named Carl Sagan. And Carl Sagan even wrote a book based on this picture called The Pale Blue Dot. And I want to quote something from him because he gets something really right and then he gets something really wrong. But I want you to hear how this causes us to have perspective on who we are and why we should so, be so thankful and so grateful. So this is what he said. He said, from this distant vantage point, the earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you have ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, Every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. How's that for perspective? Then he goes on to say, the earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that, in glory and triumph, they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on a scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner, how frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, and how fervent their hatreds. And so, so far, he's doing a pretty good job to give this perspective, right? He's right that many human beings throughout history have thought far too highly of themselves, including me, which has given size and scope. To, when we look at this, when we see the size and scope of the universe, it seems silly and downright ludicrous. It's true that many human beings have given their lives to things that in the end are meaningless or seemingly so small. But this is where he gets off track and ends up with a very bleak and dark worldview because without God, think where this leads. This is, this is the point. He says, our posturings, our imagined self-importance the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Think about the darkness of this worldview. If there is no God, if there is no creator who loves you, if there's no person who actually saves you from yourself, you are just a lonely speck in the cosmic dark. That's a pretty, that's a harsh worldview. That's something that I don't want to live with, and I know you don't want to, and there's not the only reason why we believe in Christ, but this is one answer, because this, this worldview is nihilistic. It's meaningless. 
right? It's meaningless. He goes on to, but what's interesting about this is he gets this tragically wrong because he knows that there's injustice in the world. Because if you listen to his tone, right, he talks about oh, all these evil emperors and these political ide ideologies. What a waste of time. Well, if there is no God to save us, why do you care? Think about it. Why does that matter? Why is that evil? Why is that wrong if there is no God? What's your reference point? Why should I take your word for it and not my word for it? And so with a good observation, because of the worldview and because Carl Sagan, as far as I know, rejected the existence of God and rejected Christ as the Savior of the world, he ends up with this, well, there's no hope, so I guess we might as well just be nice to each other because this is the only place we've got. And so it becomes human efforts with just more education, with just more kindness, with more government programs, with a better economic system, then maybe we'll have a utopia on earth on this little speck. And of course, that is not the solution. The only solution in Sagan's worldview are those human efforts. Why does he even care? And I'm going to give you kind of the good news here. He cares because like every human being, we know that this world and the universe was created for something better. He knows because God has given all human beings a God-shaped vacuum that only he can fill. Look at the next verses, verses 6 through 7 here. It says, Then the land will yield its harvest, and God, our God, will bless us. Not only will he bless us, all the ends of the earth will fear him. So God not only focuses in on our pale blue dot, but he cares about our well-being, including such things like harvests, seasons, and our joys and our hurts. All the ends of the earth, and yes, the entire universe, will in the end honor and worship the Creator. God has written eternity on our hearts, and only He provides the way, which is why I have another picture for you, which is this picture. It's the Salvatore Mundi. This is a, uh, by a Venetian artist named Titian. And so Jesus is giving the sign of blessing there, and He's holding a sphere, and that sphere represents the world that there's not a single person in this world that Jesus did not die for, is the way we like to say this. And so here's the solution. So here you have Carl Sagan saying, nothing's out there to say us. We're just this suspended little speck in a sunbeam. And it's like, we have a solution for this. Jesus actually holds the world in his palm. Jesus actually, and look what's on top of the world, by the way. It's the cross. So on this pale blue dot, the savior of the world comes in as an embryo, is born, lives, dies, is resurrected and ascended. That's the solution to save us from ourselves. And so this is God's ultimate blessing. When this psalm was written and sung almost 3,000 years ago for the first time, it's unlikely they knew that this was the ultimate solution. You know, David sometimes in his prophecies has hints of this, and Jesus quotes from the psalms on the cross, but they had a hope. They knew that God was going to restore all things. They knew that God's salvation was going to be sent around the world, but they didn't have the full picture. So how does God bless the world then? Because after all, it's blessing upon blessing. We see that in the Psalms. Well, the first one, because you saw that picture, is in creation. Ask yourself this question on this Thanksgiving. Did God have to create the world? The answer is absolutely not. God's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. And yet it's almost as if God can't help but share of himself. And he creates anyways. That is an act of blessing. He is totally self-sufficient, and he does so knowing that we're going to screw it up. Talk about a God giving us blessings. Another area that God blesses us, and this seems odd to us as Lutherans to talk this way sometimes, is through his law. We saw that in the Deuteronomy 8 passage. But God gives us the law for our own good. He gives it to us for our benefit. Part of the reason he gives us the law is because he knows we're going to screw up his creation. He gives it to us so we don't kill each other, to restrain evil. 
We Lutherans call that the first use of the law. Okay? The primary use that we talk about often here is he gives us the law to show us our need, to realize that we aren't as self-important as Sagan was pointing out there, but rather that we need that Savior, that we need somebody who can fulfill the law on our behalf. He, that's a blessing, to know our need. And it's also that guide for us, because now that we are in Christ and because we don't have to perform, because he's done that for us, we can now look at the law in joy and say, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. And so now I'm going to live in my baptism. I'm going to live in that grace. So the law is a blessing, and that Deuteronomy 8 passage includes that. Another way that God blesses us is through the sacraments. So thinking about that pale blue dot, how that blessing goes into the entire world, think about our baptisms. Christ comes to us and claims us on his own through ordinary water on that pale blue dot. That's a blessing. Christ today is going to come to us in this holy meal in which he gives of his body and his blood for salvation and for forgiveness and for sustaining and for equipping us to go out into the world. That Savior is coming to us on that pale blue dot. Again, the blessings are going throughout the world. Think about our nation. We do live in a nation, and it's okay to say, say this, right? Sometimes we hesitate because of politics, but we should be grateful to be here today at 1040 a.m. worshiping God openly and freely and safely. God has blessed us in our nation. Now, we have brothers and sisters that don't have that blessing, and we should pray for them. But for us here right now, that's a blessing. It's a blessing upon blessing. And then ultimately, of course, and the sacraments were already an allusion to this, God blesses us through the birth, life, death, and resurrection, and ascension of Christ. Again, there's a cross on that entire globe because Christ is the king. We're actually getting close to Christ the King Sunday in the church here. Not only is he the king of this world, but of the entire universe. God not only entered history as fully God and fully man on this blue dot, but he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. So on this Thanksgiving, we have blessing upon blessing. What has God not done for us and for our benefit? So let's rest in his promises, knowing that sin, death, and the devil have been defeated, and that we will be with him forever and see him as he is. To God alone the glory. Amen.